Today's reading comes from Genesis chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from buying your dead, or from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me, Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing hearing of the Hittites of all who went at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me, you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field of with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried his Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a buying place by the Hittites." It's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm good. Saturday, May 6th, was the coronation of King Charles III and his wife Camilla as king and queen consort of the United Kingdom and other Commonwealth realms. However, if certain events hadn't happened, a very different queen would have been crowned that day. Charles' first marriage was to a woman named Diana, and she was not from any royalty. She was known as the People's Princess. Unfortunately, this fairy tale wedding did not, um, did not last, and they divorced due to unfaithfulness on his part. Then on August 31st of 1997, tragedy struck, and Princess Diana died in a high-speed collision. It's hard to explain this if you were not living around this time, how big, new, how big of news this was. It was on everything. 
And you couldn't get away from it. It became somewhat annoying if you couldn't care less about the whole royal family thing. Like it, it had all of the things that the media feeds on as well, all the controversies and everything. And it was the biggest news. And I remember anybody who said a word negative or neutral about Diana was like immediately pilloried. Because you couldn't imagine, if you told somebody then, okay, 27 years later, people are barely going to know who in the world Princess Diana is. I mean, we were talking with some, some people the other day, and they weren't even born in 1997, but luckily they, they actually knew more about the royal family than I did, um, so they, they, they knew about it. Um, but if you were to suggest, yeah, 26, late, 26 years later, that uh, on many of the news articles, they would not even mention Princess Diana's name when King Charles was crowned, they would, they would have lost their minds because that's how important it seemed at the time. It seemed she had this lasting legacy because she did many good works as well. She fed starving kids in Africa, amongst many other things. She did all these wonderful works, but 26 years later, barely anything remains. There are things we think leave a legacy that, that are just like tears in the rain. They just flow away. And there's other things we take for granted. We take for granted our parents who pray over us. We take for granted um, those people in our life, the teacher who pours their heart into us. And we don't realize that is the lasting legacy we should have looked at because there is a princess in the scripture today. Her name is Sarah. And to this day, we talk about Sarah. And Sarah, she has so many interesting, distinctive things about her. One, and I'm not talking about our Sarah Biddle here, but Sarah from the Old Testament here, that no other woman in all the scripture has. Here's two things. One is that she's the only woman in scripture in which, in which the, age of, the age she was when she died is actually recorded. Kind of surprising. She's the only woman in scripture that both men and women, that both women and men are told to emulate. No other person, not even Mary, the mother of Jesus, holds this distinction. Faith leaves an eternal legacy. Well, well, uh, while God makes his promises and his covenants to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those promises are to their wives as well. Because when the Lord says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, he really means that the two become one. While Abraham was the man of faith, Sarah was a woman of faith. She also trusted God for the promise. Her name was Sarai and then Sarah, and both are progressive names that mean princess. When renamed by God, Sarah was told, uh, was told princes and kings would come from her. The princes, uh, uh, this princess was called, promised, and sent as well as Abraham was. As we hold this memorial, let us remember that. I figured since this is the funeral for a princess, I thought maybe of wearing my uh, black suit and tie and white shirt that I use when I'm doing funerals, but I decided I didn't want to wear a suit today, so I felt purple was appropriate for the death of a, fu of a princess. Last time on Patriarchs, you're probably wondering, what happened to chapter 22? Weren't we just in chapter 21? And good on you for paying attention. Really impressed. Um, what happened to chapter 22? Well, I had preached on chapter 22 when I was going over a series called The Names of God. And the name of God that's first mentioned in chapter 22 of Genesis is Yahweh Yaira or Yahweh Jireh. In fact, you probably know it by Jehovah Jireh. I'm not going to do this very briefly. I don't want to go over all the history. Um, Jehovah actually was a name that was... Um, 
made, I, I guess, to say, to get as close to the name of God without actually saying the name of God, least you blaspheme his name. Um, Jay, for instance, actually, some, those of you who like history, Jay was not really invented until the 16th century, if you can believe that. It's true. Um, so Jehovah actually, so it's a euphemism for the name of God, which is funny. Then you have like the Jehovah Witnesses, the cult who um, believe that, that we want to be called Jehovah Witnesses because that's the name of God. Well, that would be like us saying that we are the assemblies of gosh. Um, but anyway, uh, Jehovah, Jehovah Jireh. Yeah, I thought that was funny. I don't care if you laugh. Uh, Yahweh Jireh. Here's, you know, when I remember growing up and we'd sing the song, Jehovah Jireh, my provider, his grace is sufficient for me, for me, for me. And I always thought of Jehovah Jireh as the one that when I'm having struggled paying our rent, I need to pray Jehovah Jireh because he'll help provide. We're struggling maybe with food insecurity or things like that, or we are just needing some other provision. I need to pray, to Je- I need to pray Jehovah Jireh, use the name of God. Not in the occultish way in which you think you have somebody's true name, therefore you have power over it, them, but in relationship because I know he's my provider. I didn't realize that all those things are very petty compared to when he's first named Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Jireh. It's in chapter 22. Chapter 22 is when God tells Abraham to take his son, his only illegitimate son, Isaac, the son born of promise, the son born of the spirit, and to take him up to this place, this mountainous place, and go to the highest hill and to sacrifice him. It takes him three days to get there. Here's something you might not know. This is gonna, this is, I found this out this week and it blew my mind. Three days. You know it's three days in the land that God told them to venture to? You know what that is? That was in his day, Salem. In our day, in David's day, it was Jerusalem. And on a hill, he was to take them up to this hill. You know what the highest hill in that area is? Let me get to something real quick here. So he takes Isaac with an entourage and he goes up three days. For three days, he believes, right, that his son is dead. For three days in his heart, his son is dead. And you think of Sarah at home, who's all trusted her son, her only son, whom she loves, to God's care and control and to her husband's care and control. They travel three days, and for three days in Abraham's mind, Isaac is dead. In fact, in Hebrews, it tells us that he had done so believing that God would raise him from the dead. There's so much prophecy in here. I mean, I don't want want to preach that whole sermon again, but it is so amazing. For three days, he believes believes he's dead. The whole time, Isaac is saying to him, where's the sacrifice? We're supposed to go up here and we're supposed to make this sacrifice. And Abraham turns to him and he tells him, Yahweh, Yaira, God will provide. They go up. And Abraham takes his son, his only son, whom he loved and was well-pleased, and puts him onto a pile of wood and takes out his knife after he's been bound. And when he's ready to take the lifeblood of his only son, his son whom he loved, the Lord stops him and says, now I know that you fear me. This really so much wasn't for the Lord, for the Lord knows all things, but there is something righteous in the doing of things instead of just the knowing of things. And it's also for us, because we've been going through Abraham's life this whole time. You remember all the partial obedience he did before this? Remember, even in 21, he's saying, hey, this is my sister, not my wife. 
And perhaps for us as readers, we should wonder, is this going to be another partial obedience? He's just going to take some other animal and be like, okay, that, that, that's significant, you know? And, you know, we call, we call the, 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 the lambs, the, the baby lambs, we call them kids. So I've sacrificed a kid. I'll call him Isaac. We think maybe he's going to try to, no, not at all. It's for us. Now we know he fears the Lord. So I told you about this hill. In Jerusalem, the biggest hill, archaeologists, some archaeologists, I should say, believe that this hill, before erosion took place, looked like a human skull. Now, whether it did or didn't, the Romans called it Golgotha, the place of the skull. And after the time of the patriarchs, after the time of the judges, after the time of the kings, after the kingdom has been lost, won, and lost again, in the time of the Romans, God took his son, when Isaac said, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham said, Yahweh, Yaira, God will provide. God provided a sacrifice for you and I because we should be on that pile of wood because the soul that sins shall die. And every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us should have been up. So God takes his son, his only son whom he loves, and he puts him on some wood as well. And the knife isn't stayed By use of sinful men, the blood of Christ is spilled for yours and my sake because God has provided. And on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross for the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was was slain. That's chapter 22. And I've already preached on that, so I'm not going to preach on it again, even though I just kind of did. Um, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, I believe I have that on your slides. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he, had, and he who had received the promise was in fact, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So let's turn back. Now we're in this next chapter here in in chapter uh, 23. And it's the death of Sarah. Let's turn back to the princess. From Francis Burnett's book, A Little Princess. And I'm quoting from the book here. I am a princess. All girls are. Even if they live in tiny old attics, even if they dress in rags, even if they aren't pretty or smart or young, they're still princesses. Didn't your father ever tell you that? As an aside, I think the major problems we see with young ladies today is their fathers did not tell them that. And that they did not look, they did not emulate this princess either in their life. She is the only woman, Sarah, the princess, she is the only woman in the Bible where her age was recorded at the time of her death. She is an example of a godly woman. Twice in the scripture, we are told to look at her as an example in Isaiah 51, verses 1 and 2. Can you pull that up for me? This one, I don't have my notes. I need it now. Thank you. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you 
For he was but one, and when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. So look to both Abraham and Sarah, saying to both men and women, then First, first Peter 3, 3 through 6. Peter paints her as a heroic figure in the Old Testament, saying, not fearing what was frightening. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be hidden, be, be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Wow, the strength of this woman. The reason why I go over all these things, we are not seeing this in chapter 23. 23, she is dead. And it is her funeral. And funerals are not for the dead, they are for the living. She, didn't have, she perhaps had a eulogy that's not recorded in the scriptures, but the scriptures themselves are her eulogy. In chapter 23, Sarah has died, and it is now time to bury the princess. But where? They are a nomadic people at this point. Even to this day, people will go back to their home to bury their loved ones. But where is that for Abraham and Sarah? Surely not in the earth of the Chaldees from where they were from, not from Haran, but the land that they are in, the promised land, for it was promised to her as well. How we act during grief reveals our hearts better than times of ease. How we act during grief reveals our hearts better than times of ease. Ending well. We are not told exactly how Sarah died. One thing we do know about her, uh, about her life is that the people in her life were prepared. Same goes for Abraham. When he's ready to die, the people in his life are prepared. We don't talk much about death in church, but we should because there's many things we can talk about. I can do a series on marriage, but some of you may never be married. So what does that mean for you? But every single one of you will die. Like that's a cheery thing for a Sunday morning, right? (laughs) We'll die or be raptured, but I, I suggest you prepare like you will die, but hope that you will be raptured. There are many who had hoped and prepared to be raptured and they weren't prepared for death and they died anyway. Abraham in this deals with the loss of Sarah. We'll see the very first time the word mourn is put into the old, is put in the Old Testament. We don't talk much about death in church, but we should. Ending well is more, part, more important than starting well. The other week I saw an interview with Whitney Houston. Whitney Houston, in my opinion, was the voice of her generation. You hear her singing, you know, uh, that, that song from The Bodyguard, and it's like, is this a human being singing or a program on a computer? It's amazing. At the end of her life, she sounded like a frog because she'd done so much drugs. And she was in this interview with Diane Sawyer, and I almost, I mean, like, I, I didn't, but I almost teared up. Because Diane Sawyer is like, there's obviously some stuff wrong going on. And she got really upset with her. And it's like, oh, what do you do when somebody's falling off that hill and you're trying to pull them back and they just won't listen? Whitney Houston started singing in churches. She had a testimony. She seemed to be a woman of faith. But when things were tested, when she got what she really wanted, she abandoned 
that faith pretty quick. Ending well is more important than starting out well. How can you honor God in your death? How can you take care of those God entrusted to you before you pass? All of us will die or be raptured. Have you given thought on how you are to end well? And here's another fact that we all know. Death for any of us can come in a moment. Very few people were like, on this day I'm going to die, and we're right. Very few people. All of us, death can happen at any moment. Are we prepared for this? This chapter isn't so much about Sarah as it is about Abraham. This is why it's the funeral for a princess. Let's look at how Abraham deals with the death of his wife. How does he react when he is suffering? How you react when you are suffering and grieving reveals your heart. We see how he acts towards, one, honoring his wife, two, loving his neighbors, and three, being honest towards others. One, his wife. It's going to be verses one through four. Your closest human relationship is your spouse. This is one thing we tell people going through premarital counseling, especially those who are, are planning to have kids. Your spouse is more important than your kids, your parents, and your siblings. Amen. Hear me right now. If you mix up this order, you'll have nothing but problems. The order is God, your spouse, your children, your siblings and parents, and everyone else. You mix up this order, here's the th sad thing. So you obsess, you're gonna, put your, you're gonna put your mom and dad before your wife, you're going to love them worse. And it's gonna become a problem with your mom and dad or with your kids, for instance. Uh, Dave and Becky don't mind me name dropping them, but they told me about this book about the rights of a child to have a mother and father who love each other more than them. That is the right of your children. That you love your spouse more than them. That they know that they are not above your spouse. This will actually enable you to love them better. Your spouse is your closest human relationship. In verse 1 right here, we see Sarah has died. She is, she is dead at 127 years young. If you're doing the math here, she gave birth to Isaac at 90. And that means she had 37 years with her boy. You know, we rage often at the thought of somebody dying before their time. But no one dies before their time. Everyone wishes they had more time with loved ones. I'm sure at 127, Sarah wishes, wish, wishes she had more time. That she could have met Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his, and his brothers. But only those in the body of Christ get more time with those they love. But first, they must travel through the veil of tears. I use that poetic phrase often. Maybe I should explain it. Um, it's something that's in poetry, especially in the Middle Ages, talking about this world is the veil of tears. In this world, it's the time for weeping. It's the time for mourning. It's a time where tears fall. But in the world to come, when we are at our Father's side, he wipes every tear from our eyes. Instead of raging at the unfairness of our plight, rejoice, you have 37, 12, 5, one year with your loved ones, because some don't even get that. We sometimes read about people in history or in the Bible, and in our minds we see them as those Renaissance paintings of them that can talk, or statues that can talk. But one thing I want to point about Sarah is she lived. 
In the movie, Secondhand Lions, at the very end, this uh, boy asks, asks his father about these two crazy uncles. Did they really, did they exist? Did they live? And the uncle's, the uncle's uh, nephew says, yes, they lived. Sarah lived. Good and bad, she lived. She lived a heroic life, but it is appointed unto us once to die in the face judgment. Verse one, that was Sarah's time. In verse two, we see Abraham's reaction right here. And Sarah died at Kerbeth Hebron. That's why I have Becca read it, so I don't get, so nobody uh, makes fun of me for saying the names incorrectly. In the land of Canaan, and Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. This is the second instance of weeping, the first time of mourning in the Old Testament, in the Bible period. Mourning is good. In verse two, we have the tears of Abraham over his wife. He is mourning for her. Mourning is good. Mourning is for the living. We do not mourn as those who have no hope, but we do still mourn. In verse two, Abraham wept. In the book of John, Jesus wept. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, it reminds us we don't mourn as those who have no hope. We live in a land of tears, but we sow in tears so that we might reap in rejoicing. In fact, there is though, there's the old poetic phrase I mentioned before, the veil of tears. And it comes from the Psalms, it also comes from Revelation 21, in which we see that there will come a time where our Savior will wipe every tear from our eyes. Until then, it is right and good to mourn and grieve, but we do so with hope, not without hope. We mix this up. Sometimes we think, okay, to be really spiritual, I, I'm not going to mourn, I'm not going to cry at the loss of a loved one, loss of a job, loss of a spouse, loss of a relationship. We're like, okay, that's really spiritual, but it's not. And we're just kidding ourselves because that emotional bill comes due eventually. I say this from experience. When my father died, first of all, I didn't know what I was supposed to feel. Me and my dad, we had basically no relationship. My mom and dad were divorced when I was six. So when my dad died, I didn't know how I was supposed to feel. So what I did, I just ran away from whatever complicated feelings I had. I went into this really intensive internship and I, uh, and I just ran away from those feelings. It wasn't a year later until I was at a different internship where I had all this time to myself. And I remember just the floodgates opened up and I, cause I didn't understand what I was feeling at the time. What I was feeling at the time wasn't so much the loss of my dad, but the loss of the potential of even having a relationship with my dad. We should talk about this stuff more at church because sometimes we live under this condemnation. We go to the funeral and we're like, how come I'm not feeling anything? It's okay, we all mourn differently, but we all need to mourn. There isn't a sense though that we grieve too long. Jacob, for instance, grieved too long over Joseph. He was like a dead man amongst those who he was supposed to be responsible for. Caused great dysfunction. In the ancient Near East, Mourning was, was, was quite the ordeal. It was a process. You would hire people to mourn for you as well. And they would stand outside your house and they would cry as people passed by. You know, I've been to a lot of funerals and some people, they have that talent. They're just very emotionally expressive. And just the idea of other people being sad makes them sad. It's good for them. I'm not that way, so it's good for them. Um, verses three and four here. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me, give me property among you for a, for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. 
want to say real quick here, he's not demanding free property. He wants the opportunity to buy property. We see this in the rest of the context as we go along. Abraham lived in the land of the Philistines and the Hittites in this general area for 60 years. 60 years. Abraham had been living in the region for 60 years and he still considered himself a stranger and a foreigner. You know, I kind of have an idea of what this is like because we used to live in Dubuque before we lived here. And I don't know how many of you know this. Okay, there's a term if you are really a, a resident of Dubuque, it's a Dubuquer. And if you're a Dubuquer, you know how to play Euchre. And when I was done in Dubuque, I said, I'm a Dubuquer because I know how to play Euchre. But I still kind of felt like a stranger. I didn't, I was like, I, I, I kind of felt almost kind of weird saying like my last sermon there that I was a Dubuquer because I know you basically had to, your, your family had to go all the way back to Julian Dubuque in order to really call yourself a Dubuquer. Sometimes no matter how long you live in an area, you just don't, you don't feel like you're at home there. But really it was so much more than that. In Hebrews chapter 11, it tells us that Abraham and his son lived in tents and they weren't settled. They were looking for a greater kingdom. Their home wasn't on this earth. We look at the story of Abraham and we're thinking, okay, this is just a story of how the Jews have a right to this land in the promised land. And it's partially that, but the greater story, the meta narrative beyond that is he was looking for a city whose author and finisher was the Lord. His wife had died. My word, what in the world is that? <laughs> um, strangers and aliens. You ever wonder if there are aliens in the Bible? There is. Abraham is an alien, but not in the Superman variety, but in the not from around here variety. The Bible says several times that we ourselves, we are aliens, strangers, and sojourners. We are just passing through. Not so much Algona, but in the greater world, we are strangers and aliens. Psalm 30, 39, verse 12, 1 Peter 2, 11, and Hebrews eleven thirteen are just three of the many places that encourage us not to be at home in this world, in the culture of this world. Not planet earth, but to be at home at this earth. Meaning to be comfortable in the culture of this earth, to serve, try to serve two masters. Man, we continually see people who want to be at home, at this, home in, at this, in this earth and try to serve the Lord. They have to choose between one or another. I hate to say this, but we've been seeing this in the, in the CCM, contemporary Christian music world. All these washed up 90s bands all of a sudden coming out as atheists or just denying the word of God or saying, I'm an ex-evangelical. It's such a weird thing. It's because like, you, you put your tent too close to Sodom, didn't you? That was Lot. Remember Lot. He camps by Sodom. And before you know it, he's living in Sodom. And then after a while, when the angels come, he's at the city gates. At the city gates, he wasn't there to be the welcoming committee. He was part of the society of Sodom. And we see this actually in the scripture we just read today. When Abraham wants to make this deal, he goes to the city gates because that is where commerce was done. He went before the city gates and the elders of the people are there. The Hittites, in similar translations, the sons of the Hittites. Because you make the deal here, they testify to it. You can't get out of the deal so easy. He became part of the, like, the clerk of courts of Sodom. So yeah, people who want to make their home in this world, eventually they move inside and become part of it. And now when they're, when they're asked by one of the late night hosts, what do you think about, what, what do you think? Do you think a person needs to repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ to be saved? They're like, I don't know. I don't know. 
What a weird thing. I guess people just have to be sincere. That's the nicest one. It gets much, much worse than that. He was an alien and stranger in this land. I want to point out the incredible humbleness of Abraham too. He comes to them as though he has no station before them. And this isn't the case. What do they call him? That you are a prince of God before us. Some of you are a mighty prince before us. Your reputation is so important. Before we move on to neighbors, I want to point out, before we move on from here, how he looks to honor his wife in this land. He had built an altar to the Lord in chapter 13 in this land. They dwelt in this land. And you can just imagine in your mind's eye, the time while they were dwelling in this land, he was sitting with Sarah. And they were talking, they were anticipating, being like, God has given us a promise in this land. Can you imagine, Sarah, one day our children will be playing out here. Can you imagine one day we'll be a great people and we'll bless all nations. And now at the death of Sarah, he wants to honor his wife. Abraham loved Sarah. And I know as we have gone through the life of Abraham, we have looked at the spots, we've looked at the warts of Abraham's life, but we see right here his deep love and unbreakable connection to Sarah, his wife. He doesn't journey back to the old home, but wants to bury her in the promised land because that is her home on this earth as well. Neighbors, verses five through nine. How you react to your neighbors in times of suffering is important. Have you heard the expression, hurting people hurt people? It's an explanation, not an excuse. Let me be honest with you guys today. I like to use myself as the bad examples because I know if this doesn't affect me, if I'm just preaching and it's like, oh, that's interesting, I'm not preaching it right. I don't understand it well enough. So this is what God was bringing out in me this last week as I was going over this. And I was thinking of the time I told you about my, when my dad had died and I went on that internship. How do you treat people when you're suffering? Do you bite their heads off? Do you use any excuse to attack them? Unfortunately, we do this to our loved ones the, the most. So here's, here's, my, here's my story of how I really messed this up. So I'm dealing with all these complicated emotions. I'm on this internship running away from my feelings. I'm very hurt, but I don't want to acknowledge that I'm hurt. And at the time, it was before, it was in the dark times, before MySpace, before Facebook, before Twitter, before Twitch. And we had Zanga. And at the time, it was this new social media thing. And we thought, okay, it's my personal journal that I'm publishing to the world. How dare anybody comment what we post on it? So anyway, I am hurt. There are things that are annoying me that maybe shouldn't even annoy me, but I'm just in that state of mind. And I think, okay, I should just express this. This is how I expressed it. I gossiped about the people I was working with on my online journal. I'm so ashamed. I'm glad that the Lord forgives and continues to forgive and cleanses from unrighteousness. Yeah, I badmouthed them behind their back, not in front of their face, and one of them actually called me on it. How does that? How does that? And at first I was defensive because I was hurt. That is not a way a person of faith deals with grief and suffering. Us, like Abraham, we are people of faith, but we are not perfect, just like Abraham. We continue to make mistakes. Now, in this particular instance, Abraham actually honors God because he does not, he does not come to them and tell them, hey, here's the land I want. You better give it to me. He actually, he bows down before them. He asks them to buy this land here. Verses five through nine. Um, 
the Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham's reputation among the pagans, look at that. Abraham's neighbors are the Hittites. They know a lot about Abraham. He's lived among them for 60 years and they call him Lord. They say he's a prince of God. If he was a swindler, would they not have said so? A bandit, a liar, a crude man. And they would tell him, get away from us. We have nothing, we want nothing to do with you. Abraham also doesn't have the reputation of a victim either. I know in movies we watch, Abraham's constantly seen as a victim, but he's not. He has an army, a standing army, at least 300, if not many more. He, he, he achieved the greatest victory in that era a military victory. He's not a victim. He's also not in poverty. He, a little bit later on, he pays an exorbitant amount for the land, price of land he wants, and it's like nothing to him. He's not someone unable to defend himself, but he is a man who is gentle. He is a man who is humble. He is a man who is meek, not defenseless. They have a healthy fear of him. A good reputation is the hardest thing to get and the easiest thing to lose. Abraham has his reputation redeemed at this time as well. Before this, the king of the Philistines, who actually has something against him, wants him to swear not to deal with him falsely. And by this time in this and part of Abraham's life, his reputation has been restored. Maybe you have a bad reputation and you think, well, I'm disqualified. God can redeem your reputation if you allow him. God can redeem your reputation if you allow him. I remember in high school, this one gal coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And I remember talking with somebody else and they felt like she was being a bit of a hypocrite because certain things in her past. And I said, she's coming to life in Jesus Christ. Just wait and you'll see what God can do. And she's in the ministry today, just killing it with her and her husband. And that's just a phrase that means they're doing really well in case you're not from my time. God can redeem your reputation. And yes, you should have a good reputation amongst the pagans. He has friends amongst these pagans. And I do not mean friends. I mean so much as, as I mean as so much as allies. Abraham doesn't have pagans instructing him on his faith. Some think we need that. We honestly don't. People who do not share our faith really have nothing to say about our faith. They may be right like a broken clock is right twice a day, but do not let them speak into your life. They do not have the things of God in mind. These people right here in Abraham, they offer up their own places for the burial of Sarah as though it would be an honor to have her there. But Abraham is something specific in mind. In chapter 13, he had built an altar in the land and saw the perfect place for a tomb. Talents and charisma can get you only so far. Integrity gets this kind of reaction from the pagans. Why in 1 Peter chapter, 12, verse, chapter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Pretty sad deal when me and Becca were out and about and people are talking to us and they're like, oh, you know, what do you do for a living? And I'm like, oh, I'm a pastor. And they want to tell me about some pastor in their area who has a bad reputation. And then you find out, I would say some reputations are slander. Some of them are hard earned, even amongst pastors. In fact, there's, there's kind of two Two types of pastors. You have pastors who realize that they're servants of all. 
and that nothing in them makes them greater than their congregation. God has just only placed them for a specific period in time to equip the saints. And you have those who think that they are kings amongst peasants. And you realize that very quickly on the way that they treat servers, who's ever serving them. I remember, unfortunately, one time going to dinner with another pastor, and I was actually just a teenager at the time. And, oh, he lit, he lit into our server. And I was so embarrassed, I wanted to put a bag over my head because I didn't want people associating me with him. Abraham has such a good reputation amongst the pagans. They're like, how about mine? How about mine? How about mine? It's like they're bidding to have the honor to have him buy their land and put, put Sarah in there. Abraham is in an emotional state. He weeps for Sarah, verse 2, and in, the, and, in the, and the first use of that word mourn is used for him over Sarah. He's in a state of deep grief, but he doesn't lash out. He doesn't tell the Hittites when he thinks of the land he wants. He doesn't tell them, hey, you tell this man, I'm coming and hell's coming with me and he better get out of the way. I point this out because not everybody in the Bible actually reacts this way after the death of a loved one. In fact, the author of this book, by the power of the Holy Spirit, was Moses. In Numbers 20, after the death of his sister Miriam, the people are whining against him once again. They're blaming him for the desert being the desert again. Not a lot of water in the desert. And instead of getting on their own faces before the Lord, they're like, why'd you bring us out here? And it's the same stuff all over again. And he's hurting. He's tired of it. God tells him, strike the rock, then speak to it. So he strikes it twice. And in his anger, he misses out on the promised land. Not everybody reacts this way. When you're hurting, it's not an excuse. It's not carte blanche to treat people badly. You never have that right. Tough times, they can either make us, they can either harden us, soften us, or make us sweet. Abraham has allowed it to make him better and sweet. In verses 10 through 20, this is Abraham, his uh, conversation amongst the man who owns the plot of land that, uh, that he wants, a man named Ephron. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites and all who went in at the, at the gate of the city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephraim in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I will give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephraim answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me, a prince of the land, price of the land, a price of the land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is between that between, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephraim and Abraham weighed out the, for Ephraim the silver that he, had, that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight of the current, uh, current among the uh, merchants. There's a lot I did not get in this reading the first hundred times I've read it because I am not from the ancient Near East and I don't understand haggling. I see this and I'm like, man, this guy's a really nice guy. He's like, yeah, have it for free. And he, he insists on Abraham. I'm like, he's really nice. He's actually kind of being a snake. I'll explain that to you in a second. Honesty in business and finance also reveals the honest heart you have. You should not be known as a swindler, somebody who is dishonest. I remember one time 
in a church that you don't know about, or maybe, I don't know, but it's not here. And I had to talk with a couple, and they were under some so a bad situation, bad financial situation. And I was talking with them. I'm just the associate pastor at this time. And um, I just tell them blatantly, you're in this problem because of your own swindling. This is sin and you need to stop it or you will continually go back to this. And they defended themselves. I was like, no, 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 no. You knew what was right and you decided to do the opposite. You stopped doing this honesty in business and finance that says so much about our witness. In fact, when people think of dirty pastors, they think of people like Jimmy Baker, who was dishonest in his business dealings. The city gates, when Ephraim wanted to do business with Abraham, they came to the city gates. I talked about that before. That's the, that's the clerk of courts. Lot was part of that in Sodom. In verses 10 through 16, like I said before, I did not understand this because I am not, a, I am not an ancient Near East Easterner. I'm a 21st century Westerner. When I read this, I thought, man, this guy is nice. But then I read a few commentaries and all of them were, were unanimous. This guy is being a bit of a snake because this is the way you barter back then. It's a bit of flattery. The person comes to you, oh, I'm interested in this section of land. And you're like, just have it. And the idea is you wouldn't just take that or you'd be a real, real big jerk. So you're going to be like, oh, no, no, I insist on paying. And then you come back with a highball offer. They're supposed to haggle you down to something reasonable. The reason I say he's a bit of a snake is because we actually have a record of uh, real estate purchases in the Bible. And far after this, when Israel becomes a kingdom in this area, this is not a kingdom, this is a city of the Hittites. They become a kingdom David purchases the threshing floor, which will become the temple of of Solomon. And he purchases a greater portion of land for a fraction of this price. It was an outrageous demand, but it seems so nice, doesn't it? A lot of times when people want to steal from you, it's with a big smile on their face. Abraham's willing to be defrauded because he does desire this land. If you have the money, you want to do that, great, Abraham did. I would personally suggest if you really want something, don't let the person you're buying it from realize how much you want it because you're not going to get a good price for it. I was was with... some people, and we were, I was, uh, they wanted us to go on a ride along for a new car. And while we were driving, um, they were talking, they're like, how much is this, how much is the price of this vehicle? And he quotes to them the sticker price. And um, the one, one of the people who was looking to buy this, they said, only that much? And I said under my voice, shut up. <laughs> I could see the dollar signs in the salesman's eyes at that point. They, they knew. But of course, you know, the Bible does say it's better to be defrauded than to cause an issue between brothers. Um, something I'm personally trying to learn, probably the reason why my father-in-law doesn't take me with him buying tools anymore. We were at Menards and they had not changed their signage for a saw that he was getting. So we get up to the register and it's significantly different. And if you know my father-in-law, Wayne, he's the nicest guy in the world. And he's just kind of like, okay, you know, that's just a mistake. And I'm like, no, 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 because I've worked in retail. You put out the sign, that's what you're buying. That's what you're selling it for. 
and I'm not letting it go. And Wayne is getting so uncomfortable. And I'm like, that's not our fault. It's, the, it's your signage people's fault. Anyway, they did end up giving him a discount, but not as much of a discount. And I'm still trying to live with that. Um, <laughs> Hebrews 11:34. Let's go back to the bigger picture right here. This is the only portion of the promised land Abraham has in his lifetime. It's the only portion he has. If his heart was to own the promised land, there were so many other opportunities before this as well and during this. They're saying, yeah, yeah, you're in a good spot. Buy as much as you want. He only wants this small portion because his heart wasn't for land, fame, and wealth. His heart was for the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about all these heroes of faith. And in verse 39, it brings us around to us, the bigger picture, in verse 39 of chapter 11 of Hebrews. And all these things, though commended, um, commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. He didn't receive what was promised in his lifetime. He welcomed it a far way off. And we are told that Abraham, he's looking for a city whose author and builder was the Lord. This plot of land right here becomes the tomb of Abraham and his family. Abraham will fill these tombs. The tombs are not just some place to bury the dead, but they are also, they also really speak to, this is where our family is. Some of you, maybe you're thinking about, okay, where do I want to be buried? I I don't guarantee you. My guess is, is you probably want to be buried where your family's buried. This is something that says, this is now home. Family, um, Families still to this day take their remains back to their family's ancestral land for burial or their land here in the United States. Um, Of standing on the promises of God, this is who will be buried here. Sarah, of course, we just read that. In a couple chapters, Abraham will be buried here. Isaac will be buried here. Rebecca, um, Rebecca, Leah, Jacob, and Joseph will be buried here as well. This becomes the home of Abraham and all his descendants. And I'd like to point out that for Sarah personally, her caring of where her remains go has far since passed. But funerals are not for the living. They're not for the dead, but they're for the living. In my conclusion here, and it's going to be a second though before I have the uh, conclusion doesn't really mean anything. Um, <laughs> it'll be a while before I have you guys up here. I was listening to, after I was done doing my research and stuff, listening to the sermon on this from Skip Hendricks. Um, and he, gave, he came up with five lessons on death in this chapter. And I thought I'd just take them verbatim. I'd give him the credit. And I think I have a slide, right? Here are five lessons from death. Get comfortable with it. None of us get out of here alive. You know, it's still 100% people die. Now, of course, there are some exceptions to that. Elijah, Enoch. If we should live to the rapture, us. But if the rapture does tarry past our lifetimes, you get hit by a car today, get used to death. Get comfortable with it. Talk about it with one another. Prepare your loved ones. You know, what's so sad is when somebody has done nothing, And the loved ones are like, what do we do with this? What do we do with the property? And then they start fighting amongst each other. Get comfortable with it. Get your house in order. It's part of what Abraham's doing right here. Get your house in order. Make your plans for your eventual death. 
Make sure things are in order. Make sure you're not leaving a huge burden of the debt for your family members. Three, clear, strained relationships. I think you see this with Abraham and Sarah, the great love that Abraham has for Sarah. What's the last thing you said to your mom and dad, son and daughter, brothers and sisters? You could die right now. And that would have been the last thing you ever said to them. We think about this when our, we get a head full of steam, we say the things we don't want to say, and then, okay, what happens? We die, and now our loved ones have that on their, on their conscience, on their hearts. Clear, strained relationships. Build friendships now. At your funeral, may it not just be the pastor and just like the, the, uh, the guys who intern people to the grave, um, the funeral director. Build friendships now. Have a, have a reputation in the community that actually means something. And the most important thing is get prepared spiritually. I said before, death can come at a moment. Are you ready? You know, this isn't going to happen because our church is built really well. But let's say the church, the thing falls in. We're all dead. Are you ready to meet the Lord? That would have been awesome for me to say that when everything started shaking because that person drove by. <laughs> Thanks a lot, person who drove by and whatever the tank you were driving. If you would have been a little bit later, that would have been perfect. Are you ready spiritually to die? I hope you are. I hope you know you'd be safe in the Father's hands. Let me go back to about lessons in death. I want to say this, that funerals are for the living, they're not for the dead. Here's my great suggestion for you. Do not make your funeral weird because it does not help the grieving process. Do not be insistent on what you want in your funeral. It doesn't help the grieving process. You're either in eternal life or eternal death. You don't care. It's for the living, not for the dead. Do everything in your power to help your family members grieve. Here's a big thing. Don't tell them not to grieve. Oh, with all my heart, I understand where that comes from, right? Because you're going to be with the Lord. You're going to be, it's great times for you. But grieving is a part of the human existence. It is good. We have the free, we have the thing, good grief, Charlie Brown. Good grief. Grief is good as long as it does not last too long. Metaphorically, sorrow may last for the night, but joy should come in the morning. There should be joy after grief. Some people stay in the grief too long and it becomes poison. And the very thought of the loved one becomes poison. They wish they had never lived so that they would not have to suffer through the memory of that. It's where we trust in the Lord to turn our grief into, to turn our grief into joy. Some people think, okay, no, as believers, we should just pretend. And at, your, at people's funerals, I see some people, they, they have smiles on their face, which is, by the way, pretty macabre. But anyway, they have smiles on their face and they're like, they're in a better place. It's okay for you to be real right now. This is why we have the funeral. So that you can grieve. So that we can weep with you. It's okay to let your guard down just this once. And grieve and mourn. Grief is good because what we sow in tears, we reap in rejoicing. In Lamentations, we have an entire book about weeping. An entire book about not just weeping over the deaths of loved ones, but of all things. There are times where 
I don't know how this sounds, but times where I, I weep over our country, I literally do. Because while I love my country, I love my God more, and I see our country falling down into a path that hates God, openly hates God. Now the culture, believe it, the unbelieving culture has never loved the Lord, but it's tolerated the ethics of the Lord. And as I see our country, I, I weep over my country. That's what in Lamentations, Jeremiah, he's weeping over his country. He's weeping over all these things. He's weeping over the suffering of others. It's, it's good to weep. In fact, in Lamentations chapter three, it says it's good for young men to bear the burden while they are young, to bury their face in the dirt because there yet might be hope. And we see in Romans chapter five, that suffering produces character and character hope and hope does not disappoint. There is good grief. And finally, this is the last thing and worship team can come up this time. Anytime we come across tragedy and death, this should be in our minds as well and for us to share with other people. When Jesus was on this earth, there was some of these Galileans whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifice. This is worse than dying. It's also being made fun of in your death. It is just terrible. And they're gossiping about this to Jesus. And basically it's kind of wink, wink. They must've been really bad to suffer this way. And Jesus hears their thoughts and he says, do you think they're worse sinners than everyone else? He says, repent or you too will perish. How about the, how about the men who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? You think they're worse sinners than everyone else? Repent or you too will perish. Whenever talking about death, when I do a funeral, I tell everybody, yes, we, we see this in the physical and this person has gone on to their reward. Know this, when you die, where will you be going? Repent or you too shall perish. If you ever see me at a funeral, you'll see me, whether I know the deceased or not, I go up to the casket and I whisper something to the deceased. Now, you probably wonder what it is. I'll tell you what it is. It's something, it's a variation of this. If I know that they have a testimony and have a reasonable assurance that they are a brother or sister in the Lord, I'll say some variation of this. Goodbye, my brother or sister. You go first, but one day I will follow and we'll meet once again in our Father's kingdom where we'll eat the bread of life and drink from the fruit of the vine. As we metaphorically, immemorial, lay Sarah to rest. We remember these lessons that grieving is good. Maybe there's grief in your life right now you have not come to grips with. I don't just mean the death of a loved one. There's so many things to grieve over. So many things we don't even realize that we are grieving over. Getting fired, that's a source of grief. A relationship in your life, like a friendship, or even a... I mean, a child who's estranged, it's okay to grieve. It's okay to weep before the Lord over these such things. Yes, in fact, the death of a loved one that you haven't even come to grips with, it's okay to, it's okay to weep. It's okay to have this good grief because we know if we sow in tears, we will reap in rejoicing. If you don't know the Lord today, repent or you too shall perish. Repent of your sins, meaning to turn away from your sins, hate the sin you once loved, and love the righteousness you once ignored. Turn to him in faith, believing in Christ, that he is the only thing I need for salvation. And then I would also say, keep this in mind as we see the way that Abraham 
deals with grief, this is how we should deal with grief. In humility, in kindness, and gentleness. We are going to respond. We have our last song right here. Our worship team is going to lead us in. This is our time to reflect on the message today. Maybe you need to have a time alone with the Lord. And he's going to start bringing out stuff, old things that you never really did grieve over. But he wants to start giving you healing. Maybe you're in the middle of it right now and nobody even knows it. You came here today and maybe there's nobody like this or maybe there is. Maybe you're watching at home. Your mother, your father, your siblings, your kids, somebody's passed away very recently. And you're wondering, does anybody know me? Does anybody care? I'd remind you that he's El Roy He. He's the one who sees us. Abraham named his first son, his illegitimate son, Ishmael, which means the Lord has hearkened, the Lord hears. He hears and he sees. He weeps with you as he will rejoice and make time of mourning turn to rejoicing.